Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today's Tuesday, December 26th, day 81 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borsell Dan here with our senior analyst, Chaviv Retigur. Hi, Chaviv, and happy Boxing Day. Hi, Amanda. Belated Merry Christmas to all those who celebrate Christmas. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was booed by families of hostages yesterday at the Knesset. Also, in his first public message since the massacres of October 7th, Hamas leader in Gaza, Yaya Sinwar, said that the terror group is winning the war. So we'll discuss what the two leaders of this war are broadcasting to their people and more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. The Israel Defense Forces announced the deaths of two additional soldiers in fighting in the southern Gaza Strip yesterday, bringing the military's death toll since the start of the ground offensive to 158. Overnight, the IDF Air Force struck more than 100 Hamas targets in the southern Gaza Strip in preparation for expanded ground operations in the area. Yesterday at the Knesset, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that before there's peace between Israel and the Palestinians, quote, Hamas must be destroyed, Gaza must be demilitarized, and Palestinian society must be de-radicalized. He also laid all of this out in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, and notably, the peace didn't include the release of the 129 hostages who were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th and are still being held by terrorists in the Gaza Strip. So, Javier, my question is always, who is Netanyahu speaking to here? I think that that op-ed was written for basically the Biden administration, the American political elites. It's getting to be a burden for Israel that the Israeli government doesn't seem to be able to um, give anyone a real picture, a real vision of what the day after might look like. It isn't that there are competing visions. It isn't that there are six different kinds of post-war Gaza ideas in the Israeli political world, never mind the Palestinian, never mind the general Arab world. But it's that this government politically is unable to really present an option. Netanyahu is seeing the end of the war this part of the war, the the high firepower part of the war. He's starting to see the end on the horizon. It's probably going to be next month. The army has been telegraphing that sometime in January. Um, and then we switch to a different kind of war, a war with much fewer reservists who are going to be sent home, um, a counterinsurgency, you could call it, the tunnel war, you could call it a much more precise war, targeting Hamas installations in Gaza. 
And at that moment, I think that um, Benny Gantz, who entered the government to stabilize the government, to detach Netanyahu from dependence on Itamar Ben-Gvir and some of the farthest right you know, political forces in Israeli politics, Benny Gantz is no longer going to stay. He's no longer going to help Netanyahu because that part of the urgent war is going to be over and we're entering a longer period of counterinsurgency. Netanyahu knows that when that moment comes, the beginning of what Israel wants after the war becomes relevant. It wasn't relevant until now. The only important thing Israelis needed to know is that Hamas's capacity to conduct more October 7th will be removed from Gaza. That was the priority. It was too important a priority to worry about anything else. But eventually, Israel does need to have an idea, an opinion about what it wants. And so Netanyahu wants to convey to allies, allies who have themselves felt pressured in their domestic politics, that's true in Washington or the Biden administration, it's true in London, it's true in Paris, pressured by the fact that Israel doesn't seem to have anything to offer Palestinians the day after. Netanyahu is dancing between raindrops here. He can't propose to the Palestinians um, statehood, serious levels of independence, because his coalition will fall apart. Because he knows that Gantz is ready to leave after the massive firepower part of the war, we'll call it, he is once again dependent on Ben Gvir, Smotrich, and those forces. And so he's. it's an op-ed that's really interesting for bringing forward a kind of sort of general way that Israelis are thinking about Gaza, basically do all the things that make Palestinians not want to kill us, but it's all in headlines. What does that mean to de-radicalize Palestinian society? Do you know how to de-radicalize Palestinians? I don't know how to de-radicalize. I mean, people live in stories. There's no such thing as a radical or an extremist. People understand their situation a certain way and respond to that understanding. How does Israel convey to Palestinians that their situation is different, that a different path will be better. So Netanyahu wants to create a new narrative that says Israel is able to give Palestinians a day after the war that is satisfying to Palestinians and to the Americans and independence from Israel, but it does need its safety. He's trying to walk that those between those raindrops while not pushing away the far right. That's what that op-ed is about. I think in the sense that other than the question of the hostages, which is, I think, politically damaging for him at home, he managed it. In other words, he didn't create too many reasons for too many of those forces to come after him. And so it wasn't an unsuccessful op-ed, except, of course, for the fact that the hostages are missing. We always talk about how Netanyahu is kind of a different leader in English versus in Hebrew. And it sounds to me that in the op-ed, he was Netanyahu, the Israeli leader, more than the American leader in this in this particular situation. But at the Knesset yesterday, he was booed by the families of the hostages. They are very unhappy with him. And we know that Netanyahu is the kind of leader who does pay attention to public opinion, who does pay attention to polling. And do you think he is at this moment? I think he's obsessed right now with polling. I think it's guiding his every action. I think we're seeing that. We're seeing that in his language. We're seeing that in the way that he will leak to right-wing press that the, he is the only one standing in the way of a Palestinian state after the war, uh, which is something he made sure that the right-wing press knew he said in a closed meeting with members of Knesset um, of his party um, a couple weeks ago. And so he's leaking to the right messages relevant to the right. He's leaking, you know, and he's publishing the Wall Street Journal messages relevant for Washington. So that kind of careful campaigning is something we've seen 
in some ways, really, since October 7th, because he is the only leader in the chain of command on October 7th who has not yet come out and said, I'm responsible. Every single other leader has. And he doesn't, that's that's a campaign thing. He doesn't want a seven-second soundbite out there in which he says, I'm responsible, that the opposition will be able to use against him. So, you know, he has never not been campaigning, not for three minutes. And if he, and by the way, the single most trusted politician in Israel right now, by far, and we have polls on this, is Defense Minister Gallant. And Defense Minister Gallant was Defense Minister on October 7th. Why is he massively trusted? I mean, when Israelis are asked in a poll uh, for a, a pretty well-known Israeli podcast by the Midgam Polling Institute, a well-known pollster, Israelis are asked, do you think this particular politician is more focused on the war or more focused on politicking? Gallant gets 90 to 10, or I think it's 88 to, to 8, something like that, focused on the war. And Netanyahu, 37% think he's focused on the war. And almost 60%, I think it's 57%, say he's focused on politicking. So the public deeply trusts Gallant and deeply distrusts Netanyahu. And the gap is, one um, among the other things that caused that gap, is that Gallant came out very early on and said, wow, I was defense minister, this was my fault. I, I was responsible for this. I'm going to fix this, you should know, but I take full responsibility. So yes, Netanyahu has been in campaign mode. I think being in campaign mode has hurt him much more than it's helped him. And it tells us something about the man after so many years in leadership that he can't leave campaign mode, even even in this moment. Don't you think with Gallant as well, it's just that he really is this massive voice of experience, whereas Bibi, of course, does have military bona fides, right? But Gallant was deep in the trenches. And when he's saying, hey, I fought in this Gaza neighborhood, so, you know, whenever, he knows what he's talking about. And one would think that in the polling, that is also reflected, no? I don't think it's just the resume. Israeli politics are flush with people with vast military resumes. Netanyahu has been prime minister through multiple rounds in Gaza, knows Gaza very deeply, appointed the heads of the Shabak and the Mossad and the army. You know, he he hasn't, you know, and more than that, the great strategy Israel has pursued in Gaza, basically since 2009, the same strategy when Barack of the Labour Party was in government and Smotrich of religious Zionism was in government, was Netanyahu's strategy. The containment, the deterrence, the idea that they were deterred, that was, and Netanyahu didn't just pursue that strategy, he defended it against right-wing critics, against left-wing critics. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's just Gallant's resume. We've had generals who were, you know, on the job when terrible disasters happened, who lost public trust massively. Dan Khalutz is not a well-loved man in Israeli politics. He was chief of staff in 2006, a war that most Israelis believe was mishandled. Ehud Barak, former chief of staff of the Israeli army, prime minister when the Second Intifada began, the massive wave of suicide bombings. Ehud Barak is a deeply distrusted and unloved politician, former politician in Israeli public life. I don't think that the resume is the reason. I think that Gallant really has leveled with people, told people what's going to happen, said it's not going to go fast. By the way, take the question of of hostages. On October, I think it was 25th or so, the, the ground invasion begins within a day or two of October 25th. The day after, or, or within 36 hours, the families of hostages came to meet with Gallant and said to him, did you just kill our families by launching this ground invasion? And he said to them, we're not going to get those hostages out, not in any real numbers, if we play Hamas's game. We're going to get them out if Hamas is desperate. 
and that'll buy them some time, some respite. And that absolutely validated, was validated and improved itself in the hostage exchange, where we got, what, 90 Israelis out um, in seven days. That was not something anyone expected would happen, and it happened exactly the way Gallant said it would happen to the families. So the families are now going after Netanyahu because there's a perception that he is now campaigning and can't be trusted. If Gallant tells Israelis, hang in there with the hostages, we're going to pursue this again. We may not get them all out. I mean, some have already died. We're not getting them all out. But we will get a great many out. I think that his basic trust among Israelis for talking that way, and he has talked that way, will carry it through. So that what we're seeing with Netanyahu and with the booing of Netanyahu we're seeing the effects of the trust deficit for which Netanyahu is responsible. Nobody else. Gallant is a Likud man. Gallant is a politician. Gallant was not a well-known or beloved figure until the war began and was part of the catastrophe of October 7th. But because he's spoken honestly, he has earned trust that Netanyahu has been shedding ever since. We'll go to a short break and then we'll hear more about Hamas's game. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. So yesterday, in his first public message since the massacres of October 7th, the Hamas leader in Gaza, Yair Sinwar, grossly inflated the terror group's achievements in the war, so Israeli press says. He stated that Hamas is facing a, quote, fierce, violent, and unprecedented battle against Israel and acknowledged that uh, there have been losses. But he also claimed that the terror group was on its way to crushing the Israel Defense Forces and said that uh, Hamas will not submit to the occupation's conditions. He also claimed that the Al-Qassam Brigades had targeted over 5,000 Israeli soldiers and officers and killed about a third of them, which is over 1,500. The numbers that Israel is reporting, which I personally trust, do not reflect that in any kind of way. Khabib, who is he speaking to here? It's amazing to claim that there are 10 times the Israeli military dead than anybody can find is amazing. It's not even to claim Israel's hiding dead soldiers. How, how would Israel hide dead soldiers? Amanda, you dropped off one of your kids at an army induction base earlier this month. How would the army hide dead soldiers? I literally don't even understand the claim, and I don't think Palestinians believe the claim. It's a claim made by a man who himself is hiding. Nobody has any idea how many Hamas dead. The IDF estimates seven to 8,000. Gaza's official numbers, which a lot of people in the world say have to be trustworthy, contain zero Hamas fighters. So I, you know, so, but we nevertheless need to trust them, but not a single Hamas fighter has died in Gaza. So I think the, a man who actively, constantly, regularly hides the death toll of his forces just decided to throw that at the enemy, because why not? What's interesting to us is um, we have been 
hearing from Palestinians in Gaza, and we've been hearing also from Qataris. Um, you know, Qatari officials um, have been in, were in Washington at the General Assembly, uh, excuse me, in New York for the General Assembly, and have been talking to people about Sinwar. And one of the recurring themes is that he seems to be a little bit psychotic. He seems to have detached from, from reality, and he seems to um, be really have one trick up his sleeve, and that trick is follow with grim determination, the one path that he has ever imagined and ever understood, which is build, you know, Gaza in such a way, build the battlefield of Gaza. And so he is turning Gaza into a battlefield, like all guerrilla groups do, and building it in such a way that the civilian cost, the death toll for Israel targeting Hamas will be so great that Israel will be deterred. But then hurting Israel so much that it is now worth that cost in civilian deaths to get Hamas. So his only strategy is the destruction of Gaza. And he's standing there declaring that, don't worry, we're winning this thing. There's 10 times the Israeli dead that the Israelis claim. And it's the, his one message. Now, what does that tell us? Does that tell us he's doing something clever? The Qataris don't believe him. The Egyptians don't believe him. The Palestinians don't believe him. So who is he talking to? He might be talking to himself. And the horror of that, that this guy who has built Hamas into what it is, built this strategy to maximize Palestinian civilian death. To, there's literally no other alternative. You can argue with Israel about a specific bombing, a specific airstrike. You can argue with Israel about a specific 30% of the airstrikes. You can literally talk about changing the methods completely. But what you can't do is tell us that there is a way to pull Hamas out of those tunnels, to fight this war with Hamas that doesn't cut through the civilian population. There is no way Hamas made it so. And now this man's claiming a grand victory over the Israelis. I think it's a sign that if he's not detached from reality, if he's lying, if, if he believes what he's saying, then he's detached from reality, and Gaza is, is led by a Nero. If he's lying, then this is another signal of desperation on a scale um, that you know I, I welcome, if not for the fact that cornered people like this do horrifying things even to their own people so i i i read this as as bad news in every direction i mean obviously he earned his nickname the butcher for killing his own people i guess the question is really why yesterday why did he let out this message do you think it has anything to do with christmas at all I don't think the message was calibrated so much for Christmas. It's a victory message. And Christmas, um, you know, the Palestinian government of Bethlehem announced that Christmas was canceled because of the Israelis. It's a just tactically in terms of messaging, you know, people believe what they're saying. Okay. But nevertheless, they're also speaking tactically to the world because it's everybody's conducting a war and it's, it's, it's part of the discourse. Tactically, you want to be a victim on Christmas. Tactically on Christmas, you don't want to be the great triumphant Islamist warrior who's destroying the enemies and going to conquer the world. And so I don't think he was speak speaking to Christmas. What I do think um, he was um, possibly responding to was the fact that until two days ago, Hamas's official line about hostages is that there'll be no hostage releases unless the war ends. That was a very silly line for them to take, because that frees the Israeli government of all pressure. If Hamas's one demand is that the war end with Hamas intact, then the government no longer has pressure in the Israeli. The Israeli public is demanding that Hamas be routed from Gaza and removed from Gaza. 
And so Hamas, um, yeah, a couple of days ago, actually changed that and presented this Egyptian proposal that had been hammered out with the Egyptians that involves something, you know, um, uh, uh, some kind of a three-week um, ceasefire in exchange for X, in exchange for Y, something that is not all or nothing, which is what it had had before. And it looks like, I want to say this, uh, I say this hesitatingly because it's not entirely clear what's happening behind the scenes, and and you know we're getting leaks and little bits and pieces, crumbs of information. It looks like the Israelis aren't interested. The Israelis aren't interested in anything near three weeks at a certain very slow rate of release and um, and allow allowing Hamas to really recover in Khan Yunis while the war for Khan Yunis really is underway in the middle of really being underway. Uh, Hamas's major strongholds in northern Gaza have been taken, Jabalia and Shejaia, at least above ground. Those are the last parts of northern Gaza to be taken by the army above ground, and that limits what Hamas can do underground, whatever forces remain underground. Uh, the army is is literally slowly, systematically destroying we know that a lot of the hostages have been taken out that were released in the last round came from northern Gaza, from Shijayan, Jabalian. So we know that probably there are few hostages there, not that many, maybe hopefully none. And so in northern Gaza, the situation really is desperate. In southern Gaza, the Israeli advance appears implacable. Nothing Hamas has done, nothing the, the supporters of Hamas around the world, or supporters of Palestinians who confuse the Palestinian interest with Hamas and therefore end up supporting Hamas even as they march for Palestine and not necessarily Hamas, nothing any of that has done has stopped the Israeli war effort. And so Hamas is desperate, and it doesn't know how to come back. Um, honor is very important to Sinwar. Appearing to be victorious is very important to Sinwar. Hezbollah and the Houthis have helped in all these minor, tiny public relations ways that don't have real strategic implications for helping Gaza. And so he's stuck, he's alone, and the Israelis are determined. And, and I think that's what we were seeing. Each one of our 158 fallen soldiers is a story. And yesterday you attended the funeral of one of them, IDF Master Sergeant Nitai Meisels. He was killed in the Gaza Strip. He was 30. He was part of the 14th Armored Brigade, and he was killed along with a comrade in arms, Aryeh Rain, 39. Tell us a little bit about Nitai. Nitai was at my wedding when he was, I guess, 14. His family, the Meisels, are um, very good friends of my wife's family. Um, and my wife grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and when she... Um, when she she would spend summers at their home, and um, she knew Nitai was younger than her, but she knew him um, growing up. And he, you know, the funeral was uh, was absolutely agonizing. Um, how do you bury? I even feel bad. You know, I I don't know that I have the right to talk about it. I, but but I stood there and I wept and. Um, he was a guy who had a Jeep that was so muddied that it, nobody quite knew what color it was. He loved going out into into the mountains and rivers and forests and making terrible black coffee. And, and, and it, you know, he was beloved by friends who would go with him. He had a lot of uh, nieces and nephews and took them with him on these Jeep rides. He actually backpacked the National Parks of America he loved nature. He loved being outside. And he was a very funny, smiling guy. I have met him a few times. Uh, not, you know, like my wife. I didn't really live with this family. I, I like them. I've met them so many times. They're fascinating, wonderful, unbelievably intelligent, intellectually ferocious people. Really fun to talk to. People with scientific backgrounds and really fun, good people. 
but I remember a kid who never stopped smiling and never stopped joking and never stopped... Um, he went to uh, war in Gaza and would come out once in a very long while, and his family said to him, where are you? And he lied to them, and he told them he's doing logistics work on the Israeli side of the border, uh, when in fact he was in a very dangerous advanced unit of the Armored Corps in some of the really difficult fighting, and um, and and saw that as his, you know, as his responsibility, and... Uh, and he fell a hero uh, fighting fighting bad guys, fighting Hamas fighters and uh, and that's it. And we you know it's it's everyone I know has been at many funerals, so I'm gonna stop here before I start complaining. Before I start crying, Habib. Habib, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This installment was produced by The Pod Waves. If you have a question or a comment about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom. <laughs>